0: Book of Exodus chapter 28. And today we'll be reading verses 31 through 43. Beginning verse 31. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it, with a woven binding around the opening. Like the opening in a garment, so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate. A golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers. And its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. And when he comes out so that he does not die. You shall make a plate of gold, of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a Sidnet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the coat and checkerwork of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty, and you shall put on them So you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them, and ordain them, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priest. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, again, we are looking at minute details of the clothing of the priest, And, Lord, while that is far removed from us, yet, Lord, you've been gracious in past weeks to show us Christ, to show us how this relates to us, how it speaks to us of heavenly realities. We ask that you do that again. Lord, work through the preaching of your word for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And just a reminder of what we've been looking at, we've been going through the clothing of the high priest. We've been going through the whole book of Exodus, but we've seen the tabernacle and the furnishings of it. Now we've looked at the high priest and the clothing that he wears. And we've talked about how his clothing was connected to his priestly function. It was symbolic. It said something about what he was to do. And we've talked about with the tabernacle and with the high priest that these Hebrews tells us is speaking to us of heavenly realities. It's showing us what's true in heaven. And so as we've looked at the clothing of the high priest, we've looked at our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And so, so far we've seen the ephod and its purpose and meaning. We've looked at the breastpiece of judgment, both of which had, or both of those had the names of the tribes of Israel that the high priest would carry into the Holy of Holies before God. But this week we're going to look at uh, really this crown or this plate of holiness to the Lord. So, as we do so, let me go ahead and cover the uh, more interesting or humorous or whatever you want to say part there at the end and say that the priest had to be holy everywhere. God was concerned for him to be holy everywhere, and that includes even holy underwear we see in verses 42 through 43. Something like boxers, but they had to wear this. It was a covering for modesty's sake. But again, we see the the intricate detail that God has given for his priest. Even the underwear, he tells them what to wear. Every bit of the garments mattered as they would go into God's holy place. God dictated every detail. That's all I'm going to say about that. It's dealt with. We'll move on. Okay. But in terms of specifically holiness, they were wearing a plate of pure gold. Now, remember as we looked At the, maybe we could say concentric, I want to say circles, but squares as we go outward. We've seen pure gold in the Holy of Holies. We've seen gold in the Holy place, or most, sorry, in the Holy place. And then as we've gone outward to, uh, the courtyard, we've seen silver and bronze. And so now we have here the high priest, and he's wearing this plate across his forehead on the turban of pure gold. And so it symbolizes, again, that holiness, that uh, cleanness as they would enter into the most holy place. And it says on it, holy to the Lord, we see in verse 36. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it lightning engraving of a sydnit. So this is, again, a type of jewelry work like we've seen uh, with the jewels. Holy to the Lord. And I said it's kind of like a holy crown later in the book of Exodus. It's actually called a holy crown. You can even see this if you look down at verse 6 in the next chapter, chapter 29. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. And so he's wearing a crown of holiness, a holy crown before the Lord. And what's the reason or the purpose for this? Well, we see that given to us in verse 38. It shall be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. And so the reason he's wearing this plate is so that God's people and their sacrifice that the high priest is bringing before God may be accepted. What does that have to do with them being accepted? I think, one, this is a realization that the high priest himself isn't holy to the Lord. He's set apart to God. He is set apart to be holy to the Lord, but he's a sinner like the people. And the people he's representing are set apart as holy to the Lord, but in practice, they're not holy. And so he wears his plate, he puts it on so that God looks upon it and remembers that they are to be considered as holy because of the sacrifice. And then we see under the breastplate he wore a seamless robe. Uh, look at verse 32. Start verse 31. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with the woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. And so, he wears under the ephod a garment of blue without any seam, but yet sewn around the top so that it would not tear. And the word for blue here in the Hebrew means bluish purple or violet. I kind of thought about sometimes, let me, if you'll allow me to use a stereotype that as guys, sometimes we have about the primary colors and then degrees of darkness or lightness of them. You know, there's blue, and there's dark blue, and there's light blue, and maybe we could say a purplish blue. You know, there's some nuances here. Um, I actually had to look up what is violet, what color does that kind of look like. A deep blue to purple. And you look at it, and there's, I mean, you can look at Google Images later on, but the variety, I mean, it's, it's broad. From looking to me, blue, to looking purple, somewhere in between the two. But the Hebrew word is kind of vague in that, that it could mean either one. But what's interesting, I think, is in John nineteen twenty three. we see that when the soldiers, it says, had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So as Jesus goes to the cro- cross, we read that he wears a seamless tunic. And then in verse 2 of John 19, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And again, this very well may be a similar or shade of the same color that the high priest would wear. In their mockery, they put upon him a robe that matches with the high priest. He's wearing a robe underneath that is without seam. And they place a crown on him, but not a crown that says holiness, but a crown of thorns. I think, again, this is just a reminder that Jesus went to the cross in his role as high priest for us. And so I want to take some time to look specifically at Jesus and how he fulfills this purpose. I said Jesus, our holy savior. I could have said our great high priest, as I've done in past weeks but Jesus, our Holy Savior. So God provided a high priest who would cover their guilt with holiness. God did that for Israel, and that was a type of the reality of the true priest, that true great high priest whom God would provide. Listen to Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. I think we've looked at this most weeks, but listen to it again. Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. For Christ is entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear before the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he is prepared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so we see Christ as that high priest. He's entered not into the copies, but into the actual reality in heaven itself, that great throne room of God that was only represented by the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. And he offered one-time sacrifice. It says in verse 25 of that passage, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, but Christ came in once for all with the blood that was his own. So Jesus bore all our guilt, and he gives us all his righteousness. You, you may have noticed the reasoning behind why the high priest wore the holy. We talked a little bit about it, but I skipped over a part. Look at verse 38 with me again. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. Let that sink in for a moment. What is the guilt that he's to bear? Bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. He's responsible for the guilt of their holy things. I think that's amazing. I want to come back to that idea of that guilt that's there. But as we think about understand that Jesus bore that guilt on our behalf, and he gives us in place of the guilt of even our holy things, his righteousness. Listen to 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And of course, that's looking back to Exodus 53, where we see there, That he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So as we think about that title, holy to the Lord. That title belongs to Christ. And to no one else. Any holiness that we have, we may put on us, or is placed upon us. We're giving Christ righteousness. We're clothed in His righteousness. But it's not inherent in us. He alone was truly holy to the Lord. And without that sign of holiness, Aaron could not minister before God. He couldn't enter into the presence of God without first having that sign, holy to the Lord. I think so too... Christ cannot minister in the heavenly reality of the holy of holies, apart from true holiness. He has to have holiness. He has to be perfectly holy to minister before God the Father, and he is, and therefore he's accepted as that high priest. And we're reminded that we're we are accepted. Think of the people of Israel. The high priest was to go before God, wearing holy to the Lord, representative of the people. They're holy to you. They're set apart. Their guilt's to be covered in holiness. It wasn't anything in them. It was the work of that mediator. And so, too, we're reminded that we're not accepted because of anything in us, are we? There's nothing in us that makes us acceptable to God. Ephesians 1, 6 through 7 says, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved who is Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Christian, how are you accepted? What is the basis of your acceptance? He says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which, by by what? By glory, I'm sorry, by his grace, he made us accepted in the blood, Jesus Christ. So, by grace, we are accepted in Jesus Christ because we've been united to him. It's nothing in us. And I think about that high priest and how they put the turban on him and they put the sign on him, Holy to the Lord. But as I said, we all know he wasn't holy. He may be clothed in holiness, but he's not holy in and of himself. But unlike the high priest and all of the people of Israel, and can I say all of us as well, Jesus doesn't put on holiness. He doesn't wear holiness as an outward garment. He is holy. Hebrews 7.26 For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. What kind of high priest do we have? Listen to the description given in Hebrews 7. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's the high priest that we have. Remember that this earthly high priest was created, was made, this whole office exists to point us to who Christ is. He is holy to God. And therefore, He is our holiness and righteousness. We come to God not on the basis of how holy we are. We could try to be the best people we could be, and we'd all fall short. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we come to God, we approach God, we come to His throne because of the holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Christ is those things for us. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So we've seen some of the crown. we looked at the holiness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I want us to consider More in detail, what I mentioned earlier, our guilt. I said earlier, we see in verse 38, Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. Even their holy gifts would carry guilt. We're not told exactly what that guilt is. Were they blemished sacrifices? Were they insufficient in some way? Probably more than anything, it's the fact that the sinners who are bringing it. It's insufficient. It lacks the ability to do what they so desperately need. But it's think about our guilt, listen to 1 John 2.1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. But if anyone does sin, does anyone sin? Do you sin? We're reminded that when we sin, we have an advocate, a mediator, again, a high priest who is righteous, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so we see that we need a high priest, much like the Israelites did, Because we are not holy. We can't go into the presence of God. God sets this one man apart. He sacrifices each time for himself. He wears a crown on his head that says holy to the Lord. All this he might enter into his presence, but even then, he's nothing but a man. We know that because of our sin, we cannot enter into God's presence. And so we need a holy priest because we're not holy. We need one who doesn't wear holiness, but who is himself holy. I have a longer quote from Spurgeon because I thought he did a good job in evaluating our guilt. This is from Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon. He says, did we ever do anything yet that did not have some spot of iniquity on it? Again, think of the Israelites bringing that sacrifice as they bring the sacrifice, even their sacrifices have guilt. He says, Is not our repentance after all very poor stuff compared with what it ought to be? Is not unbelief mixed with our faith? Has not our love a measure of lukewarmness in it? Did you ever sing to the Lord yet with pure, reverent praise without these being some without these being some forgetfulness of the God to whom you sing? I have never prayed a prayer yet with which I have felt content. From my first prayer until now, I have need of grace to cover my shortcomings at the mercy seat. No act of consecration, no act of self-sacrifice, no rapture of fellowship, no height of spirituality has been without its imperfection. If even the apostles on the mount of transfiguration feared as they entered into the cloud and wandered in their speech, not knowing what they said, is it not strange? Is it, is it no strange thing that we are like them? If we ourselves see much to regret, what must the eye of God behold? Again, a long quote, but I hope it helps to drive home that even our worship is tainted. There's nothing that we're doing that isn't Without its fault, I thought especially when he talked about singing. As we sing hymns here in church, do your mind sometimes wander? Do you sing the words, knowing the words because you memorized them years ago with very little thought? Do you sing them, maybe even thinking about them, but not actually attributing them to God, not giving Him the worship that's due His name, or our prayers? He says. And Spurgeon's a man who I have great respect for. He's never prayed a prayer that he was content with. Even our sacrifices, our worship, are tainted with guilt. Phil Riken says this, If we look to Jesus in faith the way the Israelites look to their high priest, we will be holy to the Lord. So often we try to cover up our sin dressing ourselves up to be good enough for God, what we ought to do instead is to confess our sin and look to Jesus for our salvation. And so we're encouraged to look to that high priest, that one who himself is truly holy, to look to him for our justification. It is only Jesus' righteousness that enables us to stand before God. Now, I want to take a little time to apply this more in depth to us. I said before, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so I can say, you, sinner, whoever you are here today, you need such a high priest, you need such a savior. We've talked about in previous sermons the beauty and glory, but look at verse 40 because we see it repeated there. For Aaron's sons shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty. And I didn't spend much time looking at this, but you may notice that these priests don't have the same garments as the high priest. It's not the ephod, uh, ephod, not the um, the turban with the holy to the Lord on it. But even what they wear is for to, uh, to be for glory and beauty. And we talked about it in a previous sermon, heavenly realities and how this is related. Their garments are to be uh, glorious and beautiful because they represent Christ who is our Savior. So as we think about that, to serve God, to enter into His presence, especially as we think about to enter into the Holy of Holies, We have all these requirements set before us. We had to be holy. We have to be beautiful. We have to be glorious, filled with glory. I don't know how you're doing on that standard. I think if you set that before me as anything else that I had to accomplish before I could do something, I would never be able to do anything. I think of the children sometimes and how they'll ask to do something and we may say, you know, once you get your room clean, you can watch a movie. What if God were to say to you, once you are holy, beautiful, and glorious, you may stand in my presence. Who could stand before him? There's not one of us that could stand before God in his presence. There's not one of us that meets that standard, which is why God gave the high priest. But it points us to Christ, who is our high priest. And let me rephrase that. To stand in the presence of God, we must be holy, beautiful, and glorious, or be represented by one who is. That's the difference. That's the key. None of us measure up to the standard. But Christ has. The high priest exists because Christ exists. They were copies and shadows of the reality who is Jesus Christ. If God's people could be represented in the throne room of God by this high priest, how much more so can we come to God because of a high priest? We've seen God's standard of holiness. We've seen also our guilt. And so we need atonement for our guilt and for our sin. But we have such a high priest who is holy and beautiful and glorious, who stands ready to save, who offers an atonement for us that God may look upon us and see us as holy as our high priest is. Listen to Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ died, was resurrected, and lives today. And he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you interceding on your behalf, pleading the atonement of his sacrifice that we would not be guilty, that God would not look on us in our sin but see in us the holiness of our great high priest. Jesus stands ready to remove our guilt and to cover us in his holiness. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think of illustrations in Revelation of our robes being removed and replaced with clean white robes or white robes washed in the blood of the Lamb, symbolizing Christ's righteousness. But it's also part of me that thinks we're not wearing... Righteousness. We don't put Christ's righteousness on us to cover our guilt and sin. The reality is, in union with Christ, we are righteous. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ is our holiness. He is our righteousness. He is our beauty. He is our glory. I mentioned a few weeks ago, Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As we think about that putting on Christ, being in Christ, being righteous in him, declared righteous by God, I think often we miss this because of English versus Greek. But in the New Testament, what we see over and over again is Christians are called saints. And that isn't saints in the way that it's used probably in our uh, culture around hazelton it's not the idols that are in people's yards the word saints in greek literally means it's agios it literally means holy ones and so paul would write letters now think about again the church in corinth to the holy ones in corinth the church in corinth had its problems didn't it there's probably not a lot of people look at them and saying those are holy people But Paul's speaking of the realities that are theirs in Christ Jesus. They are saints. They are holy ones. And so the New Testament recognizes Christians as holy ones. That is who you are. That is your identity in Jesus Christ if you are a Christian today. And so we're encouraged to rest in Christ's holiness. I mean, what do we do when we look at the standard and say, oh, we have to be perfectly holy. We have to be beautiful and glorious and we don't measure up well I think what we do is we rest in Christ's holiness we know that we are holy in Jesus Christ I think it leads us to love Christ more and more for providing for us that righteousness that we could not provide for ourselves for being our holiness even as I say that, I think we're also encouraged to live as holy ones. Now, I want to be careful here because I've already said we're not holy. We can't be holy. We don't act holy. We sin. We all sin. And it's not our being holy or acting holy that gets us into heaven. We've seen that, right? It's the holiness of another one. It's the holiness of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. But yet, we ought to live out who we are in Christ. In light of who we are in Him, our identity, we're to live like that. Here's a quote from Richard Baxter, the Puritan. He says, Remember your ultimate purpose, and when you set yourself to your day's work or approach any activity in the world, let holiness to the Lord be written upon your hearts in all that you do. Don't wear it as a sign. But to be mindful of all that we do and all we go about, that we're doing it with the ideal in our heart, holiness to the Lord. Holiness to the Lord. So out of love for Christ, our desire ought to be to live like Christ, to be like our Savior, to live out who we are in him. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Isn't that amazing? Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that's crazy. I mean, it really is. You think about the high priest I don't know that I would have wanted Aaron's job. I mean, there's that part of me that says, how awesome would it be to be the person who got to be the closest to the presence of God on the face of the earth? To enter into that holy place before God. But wouldn't you also be mindful of the fact that I know what I said this morning. I know what I thought even a few minutes ago. I know what I did to that person yesterday, I mean, I could recount list after list of how I would fall short. And so I imagine, well, I think of even when the angels appeared to people, you know their response. What do the angels always say to them? Fear not. Do not fear. Why? Well, whatever they saw made them afraid. Or Isaiah, when he, in a vision, saw God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And then what he, what was his response to that? Woe is me for I'm undone, obliterated, vaporized before God. Woe is a proclamation of judgment upon me. I deserve to be judged before, because I'm standing before a holy God. And I'm a person of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. He knew his sin. Therefore, brothers, we have confidence in the holy places. How can we confidently enter not, not the shadow, not the tabernacle or the holy of holies, but how can we with confidence enter into the throne room of God one day? I think daily in prayer, but I think he's speaking also of there will come a day in that day of judgment. We will stand before God. Do you have confidence to enter into God's presence? I was talking with a friend recently. We were discussing the gospel and faith. And he has a different understanding of things. And because of that, there's no confidence. There's always that possibility that if I did the wrong sin at the wrong time, And I died before I made repentance for that. I'm a goner. There's no hope for me. Brothers, here's the hope. Since we have confidence in the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That's our confidence. It's not who we are. It's not our holiness. It's the blood of Jesus that makes atonement for that which is unholy. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, the veil, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Again, what's our confidence? It's the blood of Jesus. It's that we have a great priest over the house of God. He then moves on and says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near to God. With our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. How can we have confidence to enter into God's most holy place, into his presence, into his throne room? What hope is there for us? It's the blood of Jesus. It's that he's continually interceding for us as our high priest. We have a greater high priest. But also notice it says, Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for, here's the reason why, he who promised is faithful. And so it ultimately becomes a question of trusting God. Is God faithful to what he's promised? Well, yeah, he is. And so as crazy as it sounds for us, knowing our own hearts, We can enter with confidence in the presence of God. Both in prayer, but ultimately when we die. And what is the basis? What's the foundation for that? It's not that I was such a good person. Again, may we live lives with holiness to the Lord written in our hearts. May that be our motivation in all that we do. But at the same time, knowing we're not going to get to heaven based on my living that out perfectly. Because I won't. I'm going to fail. But when I do... I'm covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and I have him as my high priest who intercedes on my behalf who proclaims to God this one is holy to the Lord. And therefore we hold fast to that confession of faith. We know that we're going to stand there because he who promises is faithful. Let me ask all of you who are here is that true for you? What is the basis for your confidence? Do you even have confidence to stand before God? Earlier in the worship leading, we talked about the righteous judge and judgment. There will come a day when we will all stand before a righteous judge. What's the basis or foundation for you standing before that judge? Hebrews 10 gives us the basis for hope. And confidence to enter into the holy places. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's our great high priest. And it's his faithful promise that we will be saved through him. That's your only hope. None of us are perfectly holy. I don't care how good looking you are, we are tainted by sin. And we are not beautiful in the sight of God, we are not glorious. All glory that we might ever possess is but reflected glory of the glorious one himself. And so I want to encourage you, plead with you, put your confidence in that high priest. Put your confidence in that blood that you may be washed clean, that you may be holy to the Lord. Let's pray together. Dearly Father, we thank you that though we have sinned and fallen short of your glory, that yet, Lord, in Christ, you have called us and made us holy. Lord, that you have bestowed upon us beauty and glory, not in an outward garment, but in the person of your Son, that you have washed our filthy righteousness, our robes, that are tainted by even our good deeds, even our worship, Lord, that you have washed them in the blood of the Lamb. We pray, Lord, for all who are here today, that they would place their hope and trust in that blood and in that high priest, in whose name we pray all these things. Amen.
1: Let's reflect on those things by singing hymn 248. Uh holy Jesus two hundred and forty eight. Let's stand together.
0: a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Amen.